now I've just been reading this book and it's a very nice book. It's really nicely written. It's a very important topic, but it's also been a very difficult read, I have to say, because it's about the plight of our animals, our native animals in Australia, but everywhere, I guess, across the planet. And it makes me sad to think of what we're doing to the natural world. But I have to say, uh, Suzanne, that uh, the book that I'm holding in my hand, your book, Let's Not Lose Them, Endangered Species in Australia, uh, reminds me very much of Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin because the way you observe the natural environment is very much reminiscent of the way they would write. Uh, Did you have you actually, not putting you on the spot, why did you write this book? Um, Well, I had two reasons. Well, three, really. One, because going blind, I wasn't able to be as physically active about protecting the climate as I would have been. And two, because I felt that there was a gap in the market um, for readers who don't have scientific backgrounds and have very little contact with nature. And so I decided to write with a personal voice and with photos to try and engage them and in the book point to where they could go next in the hope that it would whet their appetites. But the other reason was as a fundraiser. I wanted all the proceeds to go to conservation groups like ACF and um, marine conservation and so on. Well, it is a very engaging book, and I do like the way you, you, you personally... You connect with the animals, the species that you talk about. And I would like to introduce our, on the other microphone, coming to the uh, microphone a bit, Jeremy uh, and Jeremy Barrett. Barrett, sorry. Uh, welcome to the Fuzzy, and you've come to join us for this interview. And what's your... How do you feel about what you see in that's happening to the natural world now? Well, Rod, uh, when I was a kid back in the 50s, it was expected that if you saw a snake somewhere, you would kill it. Simple as that. And I did that once with a bit of fencing wire, and I felt really bad after I'd done it, even though that's what I was told I should do. I have different reactions now to our natural species. The other day, just near where we live in Greenway, I came across a beautiful big red-bellied black snake just soaking up the morning sun on the grass. And um, I went up fairly close to him or her and uh, just gazed at it and it looked back at me and didn't seem to feel the need to, to wriggle away. So we just looked at each other for a while and I thought, you're a handsome animal. I hope you survive. Beautiful. And I walked away. I saw a short video clip online a few days ago and it was a shark, probably a bull shark, cruising very close to the shore or the beach Mm. and the comment was something about how scary it was and I just thought, and in fact I often don't reply to stuff online, but I said, no, what a beautiful animal. We should rejoice. Just don't swim with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah right. exactly. Yeah. And, and sharks, uh, Suzanne, that's mm-hmm. one of the creatures that you like to talk about in your book. Yes. Tell, tell me a little bit about sharks. Well, I suppose I'm aware that you grow up thinking they're terrifying 
and you ne- it never occurs to you that they're in their own habitat and you're invading their territory in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so really you shouldn't be putting the blame on them but on yourself. Uh, but what I discovered in researching sharks that there is enormous variety. Some of them are totally benign. Very few will actually, I think the orca whale is one, but uh, very few sharks will actually go for a human. If there's any other food, they, they'd rather not. The we smell of blood. don't taste that good probably to a shark. <laughs> I don't think we do. I think you yeah. said in your book, that in, in that chapter, that there's only uh, like a handful of the many hundreds of species. Yes. Yeah, the that tiger and so forth. Yeah. Bull sharks. Yeah, bull sharks. Uh, White sharks, mm. a great, the great white. Yeah, anyway, they're, they're, mm. they're, they're the very few that are actually dangerous to humans. Very few. And even then, you, you should know where they are. You should learn about nature and learn that it's okay for me to go in this water this far, but after that, it's, I'm fair game if I choose to go there. Instead of rushing up and saying, oh, we've got to kill these creatures, they're threatening us, we should be saying we need they have a right to be here too. Well, Jeremy had a story about snakes just then, and but I'm reminded of a thing I saw on the television many years ago, and sharks were evil, sharks were the enemy, and the scuba divers were down with these spears with a tip, with a shotgun, on the, on a sh- uh, shotgun cartridge on the end of it, and they would swim up to the unsuspecting shark and they would jab it with this thing and, and they just went through killing as many sharks as they could and I don't know at the time I guess my own attitude was maybe a little bit like yours Jeremy I didn't really quite see anything wrong with that but well why do we need why do we need sharks <laughs> why do we need them yeah well, I mean what, well, what, they what have are a... they if I'm going to be a really hardcore money person or like, I don't care for the aesthetics of a shark. Why should we have Because sharks? there's a thing called the biodiversity, and every creature has its place within it. In fact, I think I said somewhere in the book, everything um, has its meaning or its identity in relation to everything else. Like That wasn't exactly the wording, but it was something like that, that every creature has its place, and that actually includes us. And I think the whole problem started maybe maybe 11,000 years ago when we first began to form enclosures and grow crops and have stock that we owned. You know, that's mine and you can't come through here. Um, and we saw us as in charge of nature and nature is our resource. And we lost our sense of our place in the whole pecking order. Yes. And, you know, sharks, sharks feed on something and other things feed on sharks. When a shark dies... It's food for who knows how many creatures, thousands. And so they all have their place. The creatures above and below depend on them. So the ecosystem, in other yeah, words, yeah. are integral to the... Yes, and we've to, damaged the whole biodiversity the ecosystem. chain. And I'm reminded, so we're taking out the top predator when they removed in the United States region somewhere, uh, wolves, mm. and there was a type of deer, I can't remember what, I think it was a deer or grazing animal, mm. and they thought, oh, well, wolves, you know, they're killers, they, uh, you know, we don't need them, so they basically exterminated them in the region, and then the animal, the grazing animals went, the population just went crazy. Yes. And, well, do you want to complete that story? Maybe not that particular one, but a similar one, koalas or similar? 
yes. Um, flying foxes. Yes. Because this is a climate change related thing, but of course human behaviours exacerbated that. Um, flying foxes are often viewed with repugnance because they smell a lot and people talk about lysivirus as though it's really deadly. I think one or two people in Australia in umpteen years have actually died somewhere in Queensland as a result of lysivirus. But, so it's virtually not. And if the temperature reaches 43 degrees, they simply drop out of the, off the tree. They just drop dead. And that's happening more and more, and they're having to move into other colony areas. But the important thing about them is that they pollinate trees and other plants. And if you take them out, trees can't pollinate, which means trees won't grow. You know, you, you, oh, they know. play a very important role. I'm just kind of hesitating because I just feel... I mean, there's an emotional thing here. We, we know we are a science program, but I think the emotional part of this is really central to what we're talking about as well. Mm. Yeah. And I've only seen a flying fox up close, but uh, do you want to describe, uh, either of you, what what, did you, what does a flying fox look when you when you get up close to it? Oh, like a battered umbrella. They hang upside down. They've got beautiful foxy little faces. I mostly talked about the um, the grey fox with the red face. And they've got beautiful little eyes and very dainty little... Little little puppy dog faces. Yes, ones that you, you connect with. They're beautiful. They are, they are And their beautiful. wings fold beautifully. The fine structure. Jeremy could probably describe it better. Oh, well... Um... My main memory of flying foxes is uh, where we used to live in Bellingen, mid-north coast, New South Wales. Um, at dusk, we'd have a flying fox uh, flyover. <clears throat> they were on their way from um, where they spent the days hanging from trees, sleeping, down to the um, coastal woodlands where there were... Um, what was the name of the gum blood, tree? Bloodwoods. The, the bloodwoods were in flower. Mm. They'd go down there uh, to spend the night um, sopping on the um, uh, on, on the um, sweet honey-flavoured uh, sap of the of the trees, and it was beautiful watching them flying overhead, not very far above us. Um, up close, um, you generally see them in their closed-up state state during the day. Um, and they're very sort of compact, a bit like a folded umbrella in a way, hanging upside down. But um, however you see them, they're uh, a very um, beautiful animal in their own way. And they do something for us. I mean, if we... Uh, what's the word? <laughs> if we only care about ourselves, if we're, if we're really... Egocentric. Yeah, 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 egocentric. Then uh, the flying foxes and the the sharks and all the animals are all part of the system that sustains us. So, and you've kind of said it, uh, Suzanne, that our disconnection from nature means that we can pretty much ignore, for the most part, like when I go to the shop. You know, the food comes out from wherever. It's all just easily accessible. But I don't see mm. the connection from myself to a flying fox or a mm. cicada. And I want to talk about cicadas oh, in a moment. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, do you, is that how you see it, that we... 
the civilization, our economy delivers this stuff to us with just fantastic efficiency and allows us, it blinds us to what nature's doing for us. Absolutely. So that yeah. was a bit of a yeah. that was a bit of a, a rant, really. But uh, <laughs> feel, feel free to add your own uh, comments to that, Suzanne. Well, I, I think more and more people don't don't know nature. They're so removed from it. You go into the most people go into the supermarket, buy their food, cook with modern appliances, buy what they think is fresh. It's probably six weeks old anyway, fr- fruit and veggies and so on, and. They never think about where it comes from, how it gets there, what it depends on, water and all sorts of other species to, to, and soil to nourish it. And they just take it for granted as a product. And we've lost that lovely connection. You know. We have. Or maybe the farming community has a much better connection to it. Uh, the Australian Indigenous community as well. And Maybe do you want to do a quick diversion here, Suzanne and uh, Jeremy, because uh, it, it is a bit of a sad day. I, th- I think uh, we we were hoping that the referendum would go through. But I think we did a lot of pre-polling and letterboxing and polling yes. uh, um, bursts, and we got the feeling in Canberra, in ACT, that it was going reasonably well, and it turned out to be the only state or territory in Australia. To, to cross the line and it's devastating when I think, um, I mean it's important for them absolutely but it's also important because we failed to learn from them the things they could have taught us about how to care for nature and how to see respect and feel connected with it we've lost all that we've treated them so badly and I'm just horrified that the Australian people could dare to say no I mean, I happen to know people who've arrived from England and other countries in their lifetime who've said no to people who've been here for 65,000 years and have gone about the whole process, the Uluru Statement and so on, with great dignity. And it just horrifies me that the Australian people could be so negative. Yes, I I, I can feel that you're in a a bit of a state of shock at the moment. I am, I am, yeah. And uh, look, I'd like to put a more positive note on it, Uh, not that I'm at all happy. Please do. um, Well, I'm not at all happy that that it it didn't get up, but uh, I think we still can learn. Yeah. And that that might be more difficult now, but uh, we should keep trying and, and... do you want to connect what we're talking about with the voice, the, ref- the referendum, to our conversation today with our connection to nature? What, what sort of things do you think we can learn from our uh, Indigenous people, not just in Australia but in other parts of the world where the, the first people learnt to live on the land? Yes. Uh, they were never exploitative. They learned to meet their needs, ensure their numbers were low. People would use that argument. Oh, the population was low anyway. But that, again, is something invaders and humans all have done. They've bred up and bred up till there are far more humans than there are relatively to other species. So it's that, that in itself has disturbed the balance. So the human yeah. population, yes, and, of course, we have an enormous uh, boost in population this year is, yeah. uh, to Australia. The immigration numbers are around three, 400,000 and that's basically building the city of Canberra in a single year. Yep. And you see the outskirts of the city spreading across the countryside and smothering natural environment. 
we've got endangered uh, koala populations. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, it's very sad. Let, let's, just, let's just track a little song break because I think uh, <laughs> this is a difficult conversation. That's an, an important conversation. But uh, yeah. let, let's take a song break here on Fuzzy Logic and our guests today, Suzanne Ferris and Jeremy Barrett. And Suzanne Ferris is the author of this beautiful book, Let's Not Lose Them, Endangered Species in Australia. And now, the obvious thing to our listeners go, why would you be talking about economics in a conversation about endangered species? But I think there's a very good reason why you both decided to go to that economics weekend. Do you want to give me a summary of what that reason was? Oh, Jeremy, do you want to kick off with that one? Yes, okay, Rod. <clears throat> yes, well, um, um, we're very well aware that one of the basic uh, rules of life is that um, there are limits to the growth of anything or any system or any species, um, anything at all. Uh, it may all seem wonderful when everything's increasing all the time, as long as it's not... Um, floods and bushfires, um, but um, we are very well aware that uh, the economic system we have now uh, features constant uh, profit-seeking and relies on constant growth of the gross domestic product of the nation year by year uh, to achieve a surplus rather than a deficit, which is seen as a tragedy. Which is a myth um, anyway. We, we, we were at this um, weekend conference because there was uh, there were some speakers who were talking about um, the change of our economic system towards a sustainable one that doesn't rely on profit and seeks the welfare of the human population rather than the... Uh, um, money and bank accounts being the primary object. And um, Sue and I can see a connection between this form of unsustainable growth <clears throat> and what's happening in the what remains of the natural world that we haven't already plundered. Um, we see that uh, climate growth, which is undeniable now, is likely on present trends to be our undoing in the long run or maybe not the very long run and we're very frightened about that for the sake of future generations so that's the connection between economics and um, the natural world and uh, the sustainability of both our, our human society and the natural world to which whether we know it or not we're inextricably linked we're inextricably linked. I think mm. that's a really mm. good way to put it, Jeremy. And so if I were to summarise what you, you said just then is an economic system is driving destruction of the natural system and ultimately that will destroy both the economy and, uh, to use my own word here, it will destroy our own civilization. It will make the planet uninhabitable for any scale of human occupation. And is that, uh, Sue, how you would see it as well? Um, I see that it's producing a different breed of people. And um, 
I've occasionally seen kids coming up close to a native animal and I've seen the sense of wonder they instinctively feel, but most of them don't get to experience that. And we're not only threatening the human species, we're, um, we're threatening them. And we actually depend on them. That's the irony. Uh, we depend on them far more than they depend on us. Now, this is the sixth uh, national uh, uh, mass extinction, of course. We've, we humans have triggered that. Now, I just want to give a plug since we're talking about economics and the environment because there's a conference coming up, uh, and it's the, by a group called NENA, N-E-N-A, the New Economics Network Australia. The conference will be from the 17th to the 20th of November, so it's only a few weeks away. It'll be at the University of Canberra, and it's a packed event, and it features national and international speakers. Uh, then we're going to be talking about the well-being economy. And in other words, uh, Jeremy, you were talking about the profit being the primary motive, everything focused on uh, boosting GDP as fast as we can go. Well, let's think about what a sustainable, what a desirable future is for humans and for our, the people and the, the creatures, the plants that, that we share our planet with. And it's a very affordable entry fee. Go to neweconomy.org.au. And if you excuse a quick plug, I will be one of the speakers at that. Oh, good. And yes, and a, and a very without being a, a, a plot spoiler, I'm going to be talking about what causes collapse, and we've really touched already on a few of those themes uh, today uh, on the fuzzy logic. Uh, what causes collapse, and because in my university days, one of the really interesting units that I studied in was the collapse of things like the Westgate Bridge. Why did the Westgate Bridge fall down? And there's a lot of parallels when you draw the lessons from that. I won't go on to that too much about that now, but uh, uh, go to the neweconomy.org.au for the NINA conference 17th to the 20th of November at the sure. University of Canberra here. You'll come with others too. Please, please come along. All right. So now economics. In the economics weekend that we that each of us did, is there a simple or a single message? What was the big takeaway message that you that you you, you got from that? Is there like thinking about solutions perhaps, or how to reimagine our capitalist economy? Yes, yes, very definitely. I came away feeling quite strongly that. Economists, traditional neoliberal economists and people were aware that something needs to change or they wouldn't have been there. And I had the feeling there's a, there's a bit of a surge of interest in it, a gathering feeling that we really have to address this. It's all wrong. And it's coming from people who were, in fact, part of the cause in a sense, if you like, because that was their field of study and, and work. But there, there are still too many neoclassical economics people in positions of power. Oh, yeah. And, in fact, you see articles in the Canberra Times. That recently mm -hmm. there was one about uh, why degrowth is such a dangerous idea. And uh, I wrote a letter in reply to that saying, uh, well, here's, here's the thing. Take one gram of yeast, stick it in warm, sugary water, and its population will double in about 90 minutes. Now that's one gram. 
doubling every 90 minutes, guess what happens? It's an exponential growth, and if you let it go, theoretically, after about three weeks, only three weeks, you've exceeded the mass of the planet Earth. That's exponential growth. <laughs> Staggering, isn't it? Uh, look, uh, we, we're almost out of time. We're almost out of time, Suzanne and Jeremy. I'm really sorry we, we have to have a short conversation. Are there anything, uh, other messages from your book that you'd like to share with our listener uh, before we finish? I, I would hope that a lot of people will get hold of my book who don't have much time to read about nature, and I hope that that will perhaps, at grassroots level, it might make a few more people aware that there are things they can do and that in doing it they'll find a joy they're not finding with material possessions, which is an appetite that just ne is never satisfied. Well, one thing that really shines through in the book, Sue, is your, your, the joy of nature, the fascination. And when I introduced you earlier, I, I drew an analogy between your book and Alfred Russell Wallace, the great naturalist, a contemporary of Charles Darwin, and Charles Darwin himself, and they would talk about an animal or plant or whatever and just the wondrous things about that. It's just, it's just beautiful and inspiring. Yep, yep. So, all right. And, and that's look, a positive. Lots of positive. And, look, it's worth reading just for that, just for that. Big oh, oh, cicadas. I wanted to talk about cicadas. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, the, the noise they make. But we, I'm sorry, we don't have time. I just want to give a, another quick plug. This one's uh, for something completely different. And a few months ago, I had uh, some guests on Fuzzy Logic. It was uh, Ashley Marchant and Gordon Waddington, and they are uh, researchers from the University of Canberra. They were talking about uh, a thing called proprioception, which is how you sense your body in space and you, how you have your sense of balance. And I volunteered as a, as a lab bunny. It was huge fun, yeah. and I went in there, and they put funny socks on me, and they had me balancing on a little wooden board and stuff <laughs> like that. And uh, Ashley sent me the initial results from her research recently. Anyway, she's looking for some more volunteers, so I do recommend it. Contact Ashley.Marchant, that's A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H, dot Marchant, like merchant but with an A, yeah. at Canberra.edu.au. Tell them I sent you. Yeah. And uh, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you, Rod. And, and Sue, take care. And look, uh, we'll have to get you back another day. Got to go. <laughs> Catch you later. <laughs>